Well, hey, church, it's so good to see you all this morning. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, we're kicking off what's sort of a new series for us, returning to a series from earlier in the year, uh, transitioning out of our summer of food. I hope it made you hungry all summer long. If that was, if that was hazardous to your diet plan, don't worry. Less preaching on food for a little while here, so maybe that'll be uh, good for all of us. Hey, listen, if you're a guest here with us today, we are so glad that you're here. You're in the right place, and I I hope uh, you are blessed with some good news uh, today. Uh, we're, we're getting back into what we call the New Testament in a year. Uh, back in January, we started this project. We figured out that if you read five chapters a week, you can read the entire New Testament in a year. And so we started in January, the first week of the year, and we've just been plugging along. And here's what I know. I know that some of you haven't missed a chapter. You've been reading along, and that's awesome. The rest of us are mostly proud of you and a little bit resent you. But, uh, but in general, good for you who've kind of been on. But some of you, you got distracted over the summer or things got busy in the spring, and you started out with good intentions, and you made it halfway through Luke and then you lost it. There are two things you can do about that, okay? Like if you were excited about this project way back in January and you've fallen off the wagon, there are two things you can do. One, you can spend a lot of time feeling guilty about that. Um, or you could just start reading the Bible again. Um, so you can pick between those two options, although the one I recommend is the one where you just start next week in Galatians chapter 4 and jump back in uh, with what we're doing. It'll be especially easy right now because for this little stretch of reading we're in, we're going to cover four books in four weeks, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and we're going to preach on these four books, one each this week. Today I'll talk about Galatians, next week uh, Philippians, I mean Ephesians, then Philippians, and then uh, Colossians. So your reading will be right in sync, what we're talking about here. I know a lot of you are also in groups where you're studying the reading each week as well, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, before I jump into Galatians, a couple things to remind you about. Uh, one is the gathering is this Saturday. If you are serving in the church anywhere or you want to be serving in the church, be here Saturday morning for the gathering. You can get specific information about workshops and times either by checking out the website or there's a little information in the parlor straight out the back doors or downstairs in the atrium. So be here to be here Saturday for the gathering. Also, Grief Share, uh, which is our community-based group uh, for those who are experiencing grief. Grief Share relaunches Tuesday, August 20th, so that's like the day after tomorrow. Uh, you can get the details for that in the Vision News or ask somebody at the info desk. Uh, it's a wonderful community. Uh, God does not want us to grieve alone. And so when you're in a season of grief, you need people around you. And Grief Share is just a wonderful community for that. Uh, so you might want uh, to check that out. That starts Tuesday, August 20th. All right, let's get back to the New Testament in a year. Uh, we've talked before about just how fantastic uh, the Word of God is. One of the reasons I love reading challenges like this is what I've discovered in my life is that every time I return to God's word and take seriously what it teaches, I just am overwhelmed with the blessing that God gives through God's word. We've talked about the, the claim that God's word has, that God's word is God-breathed. This is a claim about its spiritual origin. It's also a claim about the spiritual livingness of God's word. That when you read God's word, you're opening yourself up to the work of God's spirit in your life. But it's the second thing in that verse that I like even more than the part where it says God breathes. It's where it says God's word is 
useful. That God's word is useful to correct us and teach us and encourage us and rebuke us. And every time I go to God's word, I find that proved true. That I am shaped and molded and changed by my encounter with God's word. And nowhere is that more true than what we're doing now, looking at the letters of Paul. The letters of Paul are super practical. They're written to real churches with real problems. Just like us, a real church with real problems. They're written to teach, to encourage, to thank, but also to challenge and rebuke and correct errors. And so for me, my experience of reading the letters of Paul, I just go to it, and maybe you can just go to it, just with this open heart to say, probably if some church back then had a problem, maybe I've got the same problem. And I'm just going to listen to how Paul wants to maybe encourage me or correct me or teach me or rebuke me. And I think if you just open yourself up to God's word, and especially Paul's letters, you'll just have that experience so uh, transparently and clearly. And this is especially true of the letter uh, to the Galatians. Uh, The Galatian church was a church in crisis. This was a church with serious problems. And we want to pay attention to this church because if we have anything like the problems they had, then the gospel is threatened in our church because Paul certainly thinks that the gospel is threatened in the Galatian church. Uh, Just from the beginning, we discover Paul is furious with the Galatian church. Uh, We find this out in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, This is where I'll pause to say, I'm going to spend the whole day in the book of Galatians today, uh, so it'll be an easy day for you to follow along in your Bibles. If you've got one printed on paper, that's fantastic. Turn to Galatians. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to kind of bounce around the text. If you've got one on your phone or on a tablet, that's great too. If you want, there are pew Bibles in the pews as well. They're red, so they look just like the hymnals, but it'll take you a little while, but you'll figure out which one's the Bible. Grab a Bible, find Galatians in it, and we'll be bouncing around Galatians. It's in Galatians chapter 1 that we find out that Paul is furious with the Galatian church. Now, the reason we know this is because in every letter Paul writes, after he says kind of the high, howdy, blessing part, he then thanks whoever he's writing to. If he writes to an individual, he thanks the individual. If he writes to a church, he thanks the church. Sometimes he'll spend 20 verses just saying how much he, how grateful he is for this church. He does this in every letter he writes. A big, long thank you. Except one letter. Galatians. Verse 6 is where the thank you should go, but he forgot to put it in. Instead of saying thank you to them, here's what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Every other church he writes, that's where he would say thank you. To them, he says, I'm so astonished that you've abandoned the gospel. You see, the Galatian church had a problem. It's really sort of two problems all mixed up together. They were, these two problems were so mixed up, you could hardly tell them apart. The two problems in the Galatian church were legalism and racism. Now, you probably know what racism is. Uh, Racism is is the idea that one race or culture is superior to another. 
And then this idea gets systematized into structures of cruelty and prejudice and oppression and slavery and violence. You know what racism is. Uh, legalism, you might not know quite as well. Legalism is the idea that there is some standard of behavior that you have to meet in order to earn God's love and acceptance. Uh, sometimes full-blown legalism might say, <clears throat> if you don't behave right, you can't even be saved. Uh, legalism light wouldn't be that blunt. Legalism light might say this. There are a few things you'll have to stop doing or start doing if you want to fit in around here. And both kinds of legalism are dangerous to the church and directly undermine the truth of God's grace. And you mix these two together, a little bit of racism and a little bit of legalism, and you are left with a toxic, anti-gospel mess that was corrupting the church in Galatia and that every church since has needed to be careful of, lest it infect us and destroy our gospel as well. What had happened in Galatia was that after Paul had started the church and left, uh, some outsiders had come. Uh, these outsiders began to teach that if you really wanted to be a good Christian, you needed to become a Jew first, and you needed to begin to keep the Jewish law. They were especially focused on those parts of the law that were markers of Jewish identity, like circumcision and Sabbath-keeping and holy days. And the Jewish Christians in Galatia were quickly influenced by this, and the church began to divide. The problem, it was equal parts racism, the idea that the Jewish people were just better because they were God's chosen people, and so the Gentiles ought to become like Jews, and it was legalism. They hadn't quite shaken off the idea that they could impress God and earn God's approval through their obedience to God's law. And so they thought like this, if someone really wants to be one of us, they need to become like us become like us culturally, and become like us morally. They thought, we're the good people, we are God's people, so if you Gentiles want to please God, you ought to become like us. And this new anti-gospel idea as it spread was devastating the young Galatian church. Surely some Gentiles left thinking to themselves, I can never live up to that standard, and if that's what I have to do to be loved, I must not be loved. Others, we know, did the opposite. They thought to themselves, okay, if that's what I have to do, I'll try harder, I'll try to fit in with Jewish culture, I'll try to obey. If I, if, if I can do this, maybe I'll earn the love of God. And Paul writes just livid, as he hears the news that the gospel is being destroyed in this church, and he says, let me tell you a story. For I have seen this kind of legalism and racism before, and I handled it pretty firmly then, and I'm going to be pretty firm now. He tells the story of how when he began his ministry and was called by God away from killing Christians to instead be an evangelist to the Gentiles, he recognized that salvation was through our trust in Christ alone and not through the works of the law. He tells them the story of a meeting that they had with the Jerusalem leaders where they talked about it for a while and everyone agreed that law-keeping does not save, 
That you don't have to meet some moral standard to be loved by God. You didn't have to become a Jew, but that trusting in the salvation of Jesus Christ was how one began a life as a Christian. But Paul says later things got murky. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, he tells a story. He says, when Cephas, that's another name for the apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, the one who traveled with Paul, baptizing Gentiles as a testimony of their faith apart from no works of the law. Now Barnabas is fallen for this. When I saw, verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. And yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? There it is, this mix of legalism and racism. Paul addresses the legalism first. He says this, we who are Jews by birth, this is verse 15, the next verse. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one has been justified. Nobody ever has accomplished enough to get a right relationship with God by, by, by their own obedience. But... If in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find out that we're sinners too, does that mean that Christ is somehow promoting sin? Absolutely not. It would be if I rebuild what I destroyed. That means if I were to put the law back in place, which now has been torn down, then I would be known again as a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If you have a short attention span, you can just stop right there, memorize that verse, and you don't have to pay attention to the rest of the message, okay? I will not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we could pull this off by rule keeping, well, we would do it that way. And Christ wouldn't have died. Now he gets personal. Verse 1 of chapter 3, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. I want to know just one thing from you. I love this question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you going to try to finish by the means of the flesh what you can accomplish in your own body? Have you experienced so much in vain? Has all of this been a waste, he asks. Paul goes on. He's pretty hot. 
He repeats himself a little bit. You can read the rest of the chapter on your own. It's a good chapter. But his point is perfectly clear. Keeping the law is not part of how God saves us in any way. There is no law-keeping standard that must, one must reach to be a full recipient of the love of God or the welcome of God's people. Now, I want to be clear. Of course, God calls us to lives of holiness and purity and morality and generosity and goodness. We're going to talk about Colossians in a few weeks, and Colossians focuses deeply on the way our life in the Spirit motivates and empowers us to, to, a, to a moral life that is beyond what we can accomplish in the flesh. All of that is part of our life with God. But all of those things are a response to the love of God. All of those things are a response to the mercy of Christ. All of those things are a response to the indwelling of those, the Spirit. And all of those things are a response to the welcome of the church. And none of those things are prerequisites. And if we make the, the moral behavior a prerequisite for welcoming someone into the church and deeply loving and including someone in our fellowship, we are denying the very logic of the gospel. I love the way Paul says it in verse 21. I just love this verse. I already made you notice one before. I will not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And if we ever as a community do what the Galatian church did and set up moral barriers to participation in community life, they will never believe that those same barriers don't exist to the love of God. If we who are sinners reject people for their sin, of course they're going to think that a holy God rejects them for their sin. And I think, you know, I want to be tender right now because I'm talking about my own failure and I maybe be talking about your failure too. But I do think we need to be a little bit honest that this wasn't just something the Galatian church struggles with, you know. That, that we do this sometimes too. Sometimes we give people the impression that first you've got to clean up your life, clean up your act. You've got to act the way I think you should act, and, and then you can be welcome among us. You know, maybe we, we kind of we look sideways at people who vote the wrong way or who use the long, wrong language or people who experience same-sex attraction, or people who are involved in a sexual relationship we don't approve of, or people we think are greedy, or people who we think are rude, and we're like, if you would just fix that about you, if you would just perform a little better, well, then you would really know how much we love you, and boy, you'd really, boy, really pour on the love if only you behaved a little better. I had a buddy, more than 20 years ago, I was in college, um, this buddy I'd been kind of tenderly sharing my faith with. Um, he, wasn't, he was pretty skeptical of all this Christianity stuff. And I, I'd been telling him that, you know, God loved everybody. And, but he'd met a lot of judgmental Christians. And he was pretty sure that if they were judgmental, their God must be worse, you know. I was in this Bible study at this little church I went to, not too far away from the college. It was a weird thing. Uh, 
there was a 40-year gap between me and the next youngest person in that Bible study, but I kept going because we were studying God's Word, and I love God's Word. I invited him to go with me because we were talking about Galatians, and I just wanted him to hear some Christians other than me talk about Galatians and tell him there is no moral standard for you to receive the love of God, that God loves you no matter what you've done, that no law-keeping law isn't how we accomplish salvation but the mercy of God. I want him to hear it from other people. So he shows up. The whole thing's kind of weird and awkward. They assumed he was one of my Christian friends, so they kind of, you know, were using all sort of insider language and acting like he would know what's going on. He'd never been to a Bible study before. He was freaked out the whole time, but whatever, we're muddling through. But we're talking about Galatians, so that was good. Near the end, he says, uh, he hadn't talked the whole time. Near the end, he kind of says to the Bible study leader, he'd heard all this stuff from me, but he says to the Bible study leader, he says, so you're telling me that no matter what I've done, good, I can't earn salvation. And no matter what I've done bad, that won't stop God from wanting to save me. And Bible study leader was like, yeah, I mean, I'm not telling you, Paul's telling you, but yeah, it's pretty clear, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He paused, he said, man, that is bleeping awesome. <laughs> and in that moment, I panicked. I panicked. These were old timers, you know, you know, this was, you know, this is a long time ago. These were old timers. I was just so sure somebody was going to say, young man, we don't use that kind of language in our study. Or young man, Jesus wouldn't want you to talk that way. Or a young man, you know, foul language. God's not too big on the foul language. I was so worried someone would say that because here's the thing, and it's not that the, not all those sentences, I almost even agree with them. I don't use foul language. I wish my friend didn't use foul language. But if in that moment somebody had said anything like that, it wouldn't have matter what we'd said about God because they would have known that that church was ready to love him as soon as he cleaned up his mouth. And he would have believed the same thing about God. You see, when we place moral standards before we'll love somebody or welcome somebody or receive somebody, we are communicating that God feels the same way. When we do that, I, I think God, Paul would write us an angry letter. And he might say to us in his sassy tone, tell me just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit? Because you're so holy and good and perfect. Like, is that how you got saved? Or was it because you trusted in the message of salvation that you heard? Like, just remind me. You see, uh, this is hard, church. I know this is so hard. But I think that's why Paul is so clear and so blunt and so angry in this letter because he knows that even the mild legalism of the local church will completely shut down our articulation of the gospel. If we put any moral barriers before our love, we'll love you as soon as you behave better or act better or talk better or think better or dress better. If we put any barriers like that, they will never hear the gospel from our lips. For we have denied it with our lives. Any attempt to put a moral barrier as a prerequisite to salvation or a prerequisite to the loving welcome of Christian community is a rejection of the very gospel by which we've been saved. What Paul says is what I want to say. I will not set aside the grace of God. I will try it no other way. For if righteousness could have been accomplished through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And after Paul's dealt with their legalism for about a chapter and a half, he turns to their racism. 
The Galatian church had a fundamental problem when it came to their racism. They imagined a world that was divided up into families. They were from Abraham's family and other people were from other families. And in this world that they imagined, they were pretty sure that their family was the best family. And if you wanted to be part of the best family, well, you'd be part of their family. Now, sure, they would acknowledge that you should love other families and be kind to other families, but that was only after you'd made, care, made sure that your family was taken care of. They might even say, you're welcome to join our family. But if you want to join our family, then you're going to have to live like our family and act like our family and talk like our family and fit in with our family. You're welcome in our family as long as you become just like our family already is. That's how your family could join our family. Paul says that the antidote to this kind of racism is to recognize the spiritual truth that we are one family. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Look, at these are all the ways we break up into families, right? We break up into families by race or by class or by gender. He says all these ways you want to split apart into rival families, you are all now one in Christ Jesus. For you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are all now Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is, guard, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also... When we were under age, that's before the gospel of Christ, before we knew that we'd been restored to one family, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. I want to just take a second and notice one of the implications of verse 3. If the, 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 the notion that we are separated into different races and, and families, and that one family is better than another, he says that's a notion you had when you were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. He's talking about demons. So what we just need to name is the very idea that one race is superior to another. The very idea that one race could subjugate another. The very idea that, that we could use race to divide up people is a demonic idea. And to the degree that it's still with us in our culture and in our churches and in our own hearts, it means that the Lordship of Christ is not yet fully present and we're still living in slavery to the demons of the world. But, verse 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who teaches us to say, Abba, Father, so now you are no longer slave to the ways of the world that divides us up into rival families fighting for one another. You're no longer slave that way. But you are now God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Everybody. You see, Jesus has changed 
everything about the way the families of the world relate to one another. The way the peoples and nations and cultures and races of the world relate because now in Christ we are one family, equally sons and daughters, equally heirs in the blessing of God. So what that means is in every church we must discipline ourselves to make sure that all cultures and all races and all languages are welcome in the church. As a practical matter, I just want to make a practical note here. When a church, any church, is heavily dominated by one race and one culture and one language, that is a church that must work extra hard to have a posture of loving welcome to other races and other languages and other cultures. Because if you're heavily dominated by one race and one culture, you you just start to forget what parts of our worship are because we're white or black or Asian or African or whatever, and what parts of our worship are really rooted in Christ. And so we've got to be attentive to that. And this is largely true of this church. You know, by God's grace, uh, we, we, we we are growing as a church that includes lots of races and lots of cultures and more and more languages. But we know that we must be disciplined to continue a posture of welcome. One way that I put this in my brain that has helped me is that it's not enough, if you're a follower of Christ, it's not enough to just say, I won't be racist. Like, I just won't do racist stuff. We have to actually make an intentional decision to be anti-racist, to work against the vestiges of racism that are in our own hearts, in our own churches, in our own cultures, and in the world. We must be agents that work toward the unity of all people in Christ and against the demonic forces that tear us apart and pit us against each other. And this is crazy, crazy hard. It means we have to delight in cultural complexity. We have to delight. One of my favorite things in this church is moments where I'm walking by the hall and I walk by a conversation that I totally don't understand because their East Tennessee accent is so thick. No, oh, I meant, I meant because they're speaking Spanish or Korean or Chinese or just the other day it was German. I, I love that moment. I love that moment and we need to get better at that. We can never get tricked. You see, the Galatian church got tricked. They thought they could teach the gospel and say, if they really want to be one of us, they'll become like us. And so Paul writes a pretty blunt letter to say, you can't do it. That toxic mix of legalism and racism always destroys the gospel. I, for one, am so glad that Paul got mad at the Galatians. I'm so grateful for this angry letter because I, just talking about me right now, I needed a book that was just this blunt. And maybe you did too. I needed to be reminded that when my flesh begins to to divide the world up between the people that are like me and the people that are not like me, Christ interrupts that demonic thought and says, there is one family and all who are in Christ are brothers and sisters and heirs according to the promise. 
I need to be reminded when I start to act like people need to behave a certain way or, or get their lives together before we can genuinely welcome them and love them and receive them in the church. I need to hear Paul with just a little bit of sass in his voice say, help me out, Magnus. Did you receive the Spirit through your works of the law? Was that how it went? Because that's not what I remember. I remember it being a pretty embarrassing train wreck of sin that led you to my grace. That's my memory. I need that sass. Lest legalism creep up in my soul and maybe you need it too. I think one of the reasons we get tricked into legalism is because we fundamentally have trouble believing just how gracious God is. We trick ourselves. We lie to ourselves into thinking that our moral behavior is part of why God loves us. And so we place those same burdens on other people. I got my act together. Why haven't they? But God's word is clear. God loves you now. And God loves your neighbor now no matter what they have done or are doing. No work of your flesh or their flesh can accomplish salvation and no work of your flesh or their flesh can prevent the saving love of God from being available for you. Those who have trusted in what they've heard and been baptized into Jesus Christ are saved by the work of God's Spirit for all who believe unaffected by what they have accomplished through the work of their own flesh. And if you needed a message just that blunt today, do yourself a favor. Just go reread Galatians. Paul says it all so much better than I did. And God wants you to know so clearly that God loves you and his salvation is greater than anything you have ever done. Let's pray together. Oh gracious God, protect us, for we are not immune from the toxic sin that almost destroyed the Galatian church. We're not immune from the demonic forces of racism which seek, seek to divide our world, even the church. We are not immune from the temptation of legalism that puts a memorial barrier before someone can really be loved by us and received by us and welcomed by us. And so God, let your spirit, let the bluntness of Paul's letter confront us and teach us and call us. Oh, may we, God, so receive your grace that we become a people of grace for everyone. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.